Welcome to a special edition of the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, looking at the fall of Afghanistan and the reasons for it. After 20 years of time, $2.5 trillion, and the cost of 2,500 American lives, the government installed by the United States of Ashraf Ghani has fallen apart like used tissue paper in the face of the Taliban insurgency. In just a month, 75,000 Taliban troops have overrun 350,000 Afghan regular soldiers and police officers. As I speak to you, Afghanistan is about to fall to the Taliban in a matter of days. The Taliban find themselves merely 80 miles from the capital, Kabul, having already captured two of the three biggest cities in the country, Herat and Kandahar, and are awaiting the final push. And yet, the Western commentary had seemed shocked by this. I'm shocked that they're shocked, because the people who did this are peddling a pernicious lie. The problem is in Joe Biden getting out, not in the 20 years and what we did in getting in. This is to save their careers, which ought not to be done. Anyone responsible for this debacle should never work again in foreign policy. In republics, we must be held accountable. And this is a catastrophe that was obvious when I said so in 2006, 15 years ago, that in the end, the Taliban may not have watches, but they can tell the time. And we are not going to stay long enough to win this war because we are not remaking Afghanistan society because we can't without the help of the Afghan people, which we do not have. This is an ideational problem, and they are trying to squirm out from under the rock so they can do this again someday, despite their record. Indeed, though, there is a better way forward. In the course of my dissension over the Afghan and Iraqi wars, I came upon the work of Lawrence of Arabia. And in doing so, I found a better way for doing nation building and working with others in a way that has never been used, which is why these things keep failing over and over and over again. One of the great joys in my life after I wrote my biography of Lawrence of Arabia was to be asked by Simon & Schuster to write the foreword to Lawrence's own book, The 27 Articles, which is when he was forced in the desert in August 1917 he was forced to explain to the British government, who had no idea what he was doing in Arabia, how he managed the magic with the local people. They were worried that Lawrence might be killed at any moment, which was a reasonable concern as he was dynamiting trains at the time, and they wanted to know what the magic was. And so, hastily scribbling in the wastes of the Arabian desert in August 1917, Lawrence wrote down the 27 articles, which when I found them, again, I felt like Indiana Jones, that this was this magical text that explained everything that was going wrong in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that we had utterly ignored, and that we really ought to follow. So in the course of looking at this text on the 100th anniversary of it being written, I was asked by Simon & Schuster to write the introduction to Lawrence's own book, which was a great honor, and which I'm going to read to you from now as an explanation for everything that's gone wrong and how things can go right. Just before the start of the Iraq War, I was asked by the Council on Foreign Relations to serve on a task force aimed at advising the Bush administration on how to run Iraq after the fall of Saddam. It was soon after 9-11, and the neoconservative program of imposing democracy at the point of a gun was in full swing. Our mission was to devise a general blueprint for creating a stable country from scratch, or, as we skeptics put it at the time, how to add water and get George Washington. This experience is what led me to bump into Lawrence of Arabia. 
One of the points made incessantly by the great and the good assembled for the Iraqi task force at the meeting was that if nation building was to have a chance of success, inserting Western liberal democratic values into failed states like Iraq from outside sources was an absolute prerequisite. The discussion focused on just how fast we could make this happen, avoiding any mention of Iraq's unique history, politics, culture, ethnology, sociology, economic status, or religious orientation. What did these trifles matter compared with the Washington elite's view of how the world really ought to work? Eventually, despite knowing it would only cost me, I rose to my feet and said my piece. Though I mangled the exact quotation, I was close enough. Do not try to do too much with your own hands. Better the Arabs do it tolerably than you do it perfectly. It is their war and you are there to help them, not to win it for them, to help them, not to dictate to them, not to manage them, not to bully them, not to ignore them, not to lecture them, to help them help themselves. The quote was from T.E. Lawrence, though at the time I could not remember where I read it. I was heard out in stony silence, and after the meeting I was advised by my political allies that I had better get with the program. Instead, as Lawrence would have done, I went off into the desert looking for a better way. I sought out the quotation I had hazily recalled at the meeting and found it in T.E. Lawrence's 27 articles, written in August 1917, a primer for British officers serving in the Arab Revolt in World War I on how to work effectively with local peoples. As I read the articles and learned more about the man, it dawned on me that all the failed or partially failed attempts at nation-building in the post-Cold War era in Haiti, Somalia, Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Iraq, they were all intimately related. In every case, they were based on the same analytically flawed worldview. Journeying into the intellectual desert, seeking out Lawrence of Arabia, turned out to be hugely rewarding. For while conventional wisdom about nation-building has been proven depressingly and predictably wrong, there are answers out there, forgotten answers from another age, answers we are all in desperate need of rediscovering. We must go back in time to the early 20th century, exactly 100 years ago, when an increasingly famous British subaltern was hastily scribbling some notes in the wastes of the Arabian desert. For Lawrence was considering questions that go well beyond the particulars of fighting in World War I or even how to do nation-building. He's offering us nothing less than a wholly different worldview for how to work with others. Despite being, next to his close friend Winston Churchill, the most famous Englishman of the 20th century, T.E. Lawrence has remained an enigma. There have been more than 30 books on him, including mine, several plays, and one magnificent, if inaccurate, Oscar-winning movie. Yet still Lawrence somehow evades us, as he wished to, remaining just out of reach. Part of the problem is that in his short life, Lawrence was a true Renaissance man. He was an archaeologist, war photographer, map maker, intelligence officer, guerrilla fighter, political leader, diplomat, movie star, public policy intellectual, writer, linguist, thinker, and mechanic. I think it's the last one he'd have liked the best. His many talents seemed designed to overwhelm us from getting a sense of what in him was central and what was interesting but peripheral. Misleadingly, Lawrence's incarnation as a war hero has tended to eclipse everything else. For most Americans, the basis of the Lawrence myth is the peerless David Lean film Lawrence of Arabia, which was released in 1962. Though playing fast and loose with the, the specific historical truth, Lean remained uncannily faithful to the spirit of Lawrence's epic account of the Desert War, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. 
Peter O'Toole's portrayal of the desert hero is widely considered to be one of the best acting performances in screen history. I certainly think so. The beloved movie took home the Academy Award for Best Picture and six other Oscars and regularly shows up on top 10 lists of the best movies ever made. It is the image most of us retain of Lawrence. Yet, this iconic picture obscures far more than it reveals. Though viewed today primarily as a warrior prince, Lawrence was in reality far more important as a thinker. Through his direct personal experience, Lawrence happened upon a strategy for nation-building in particular and leadership in general that was revolutionary then and remains so now, an intellectual philosophy forged in the cauldron of World War I. It might well have saved the world in the Middle East, a great deal of subsequent historical agony if his views had carried the day. In the 27 articles written 100 years ago as a practical guide for British officers serving with the Hashemite army in Western Arabia and Syria, Lawrence quite brilliantly laid out a wider philosophical basis for working with peoples on the cusp of nation building. While the articles, as is true of all historical documents, are a product of their time, containing an imperial ethos, and Lawrence was surely a fervent, if reformist, imperialist, more importantly, they put forward a forgotten philosophy that transcends the specific limits of their time and space. Lawrence ultimately respects the agency of local Arab stakeholders in a way that betters the vast majority of our modern efforts, certainly that in Afghanistan. This long-forgotten philosophy constitutes nothing less than an entirely workable blueprint for nation-building in our own troubled era. Lawrence's policy primer had made the Arab stakeholders in the outcome of their war, the primary actors in their own story of regeneration and renewal. While the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire was, as Lawrence put it, a sideshow within a sideshow, unlike the carnage on the Western Front, it yielded a decisive Allied victory. During the war in Western Arabia and Greater Syria, the charismatic Prince Faisal, Lawrence's comrade and close collaborator, possessed the rarest and most precious of attributes for nation-building to succeed. In Arabia, Faisal was the unquestioned, rightful, legitimate representative of local political power. This local legitimacy was the cornerstone of Lawrence's very different philosophy and the policy methods that sprang from it. The simple, unimpeachable fact was the wellspring of Lawrence's entirely revolutionary philosophy. One needs to start with the pieces already in play, rather than imposing prefabricated ideals from afar. Today, beyond all the mythology surrounding the enigmatic Lawrence, the most important aspect of him, the man as thinker, lies waiting to be rediscovered. If, the, if his story helps provide the context for the greater tragedy of the Middle East for the rest of the 20th century, his forgotten ideas laid out in the 27 articles provide an antidote to the tragedy's continuation. In August 1917, the British High Command Belatedly realizing they had no real idea how Lawrence had produced the miracle of capturing vital Aqaba with Faisal's ragtag Bedou army, tasked him with codifying what he had learned about the Arabs in a manual that could be used by other British officers serving in the field with the Hashemite troops. It was feared that, given the good chance Lawrence might die, his unique knowledge of working with the Arab forces would be lost forever. So Lawrence, in the midst of the guerrilla campaign that followed Aqaba, somewhat grumpily began typing his 27 articles in the heat of the desert sun. A brilliant mixture of political, military, and psychological analysis, the 27 articles offers nothing less than a revolutionary new way for Western nation builders to look at the rest of the world. It was a century ahead of its time. 
Lawrence realized that in his particular case, he could not win without the political support of the local Arab population in Western Arabia and greater Syria. But with their support, he could not lose. First appearing in the Arab Bulletin on August 20th, 1917, Lawrence stressed that the 27 general rules he propounded were based on his experiences in the Hejaz, which is Western Arabia, and apply only to the Bedou. However, this is far too analytically modest. For with the 27 articles, what Lawrence laid out was a startlingly original general philosophy for nation-building writ large. More than this, Lawrence somewhat unwittingly tapped into a more general notion of what successful leadership actually amounts to. For Lawrence, local organic developments, specific cultural knowledge, and an emphasis on the unique are the keys to successful nation-building. He stressed the conservative view of the 18th century Anglo-Irish philosopher Edmund Burke that politics is an organic construction, like a plant it blossoms or perishes in the soil of a unique history, culture, and set of circumstances. Lawrence's first general principle laid out in the 27 articles is then that local knowledge and particularism are the keys to nation-building success. Understanding and working with local culture and the politics that flow from it is what matters most. The second point of the 27 articles commands, learn all you can about your Ashraf and Bedou, Get to know their families, clans and tribes, friends and enemies, wells, hills, and roads. This is because, as America has found recently to its own bitter cost, it is impossible to transform a society about which one knows almost nothing. Lawrence's diametrically opposed admonition suggests that learning about the peoples one is attempting to help is far more important than forcing them to accept Western norms that have played no historical role in their culture. In Lawrence's case, because he underlined the need to work entirely within the existing Beto social and political structure, his initiatives had a real chance of taking root and acquiring the local support that makes policy longevity possible. Working with the grain of history contrasts with the usual tired Western approach, as happened in Afghanistan, of grafting foreign ideas onto a native culture, which is often rejected in short order. On the other hand, Lawrence's approach makes locals buy in which is absolutely vital for successful nation-building and makes success at least a possibility. Lawrence tells an amusing story about himself, illustrating what happens when a Westerner takes charge of another people's destiny. He quickly gets out of his depth. During an atypical guerrilla raid, he was forced to lead an expedition personally rather than serve in his usual role as advisor to the local tribal chieftain. Lawrence late, later ruefully remembered the debacle. I had to be the officer in charge of the whole expedition. This is not a job which should be undertaken by foreigners, since we have not so intimate a knowledge of Arab families. I had to adjudicate in 12 cases of, of assault and weapons, four camel thefts, one marriage settlement, 14 fuge, two evil eyes, and a bewitchment. These affairs take up all one spare time. While Lawrence typically sees the humor in the situation, there is real peril at work here. A lack of deep knowledge required to adequately adjudicate these disputes risk destabilizing the whole expedition, as it would invariably lead to chaos and infighting. How much more is this the case when, unlike Lawrence, local knowledge is almost entirely lacking, as occurred in American in in misadventures in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan? It is a measure of Lawrence's success in mastering a true understanding of Bedou culture that it was Faisal himself who first suggested that he wear the robes of a tribal chieftain, which illustrated as nothing else could that the Arab tribesmen considered Lawrence one of us. 
In fact, Faisal comes to be vexed on the rare subsequent occasions when Lawrence appeared in regulation British khaki, as if this meant he was breaking faith with the honorary tribal membership the Arabs had bestowed on him. Lawrence makes clear in Article 18 of the 27 Articles that if you can wear Arab kit when with the tribes, you will acquire their mutual trust and intimacy to a degree impossible in uniform. Wearing Arab dress became the iconic symbol of Lawrence's cultural understanding of and affinity for the Arab world, a metaphorical badge of honor underlying his radically different approach of working with the Beto in a bottom-up fashion. The final point of the 27 Articles makes this crystal clear. Lawrence says, The beginning and ending of the secret of handling Arabs is an unremittent study of them. This is true for every single culture in the world. The second general principle underlying the 27 Articles is the absolute primacy of politics. Lawrence understood that local Arab politics superseded whatever was happening on the battlefield against the Ottoman Empire. In fact, things worked the other way around. The military outcome of the Arab revolt was dependent on the political disposition of the locals. The key to victory was simple, gain local civilian sympathy. For the campaign to succeed, it must have a friendly population, not actively friendly, but sympathetic to the point of not betraying rebel movements to the enemy. Rebellions can be made by 2% active in a striking force and 98% passively sympathetic, as Lawrence wrote. Crucially, Lawrence never forgot that for Faisal and the Arabs, the ultimate goal of the war was political, to forge an Arab nation. For nation building to be successful, determining the organic local unit of politics is key. In the case of the Bedou, it was the fiercely independent tribe and not the Western preference for some sort of Jeffersonian construct. Lawrence squared the circle by working with Arab political realities, not ignoring them. The unit of politics in the Bedou world was tribal and local, whether he liked it or not. As he made clear, quote, the largest indigenous political entity in settled Syria is only the village under its sheikh and in patriarchal Syria under its chief, unquote. Lawrence understood that such a fractured political reality called for a minimum of central power as confederation organically meshed with the dominant localism that defined American politics, that defined, pardon me, Arab politics in Faisal's army, as well as in greater Syria. The opposite of what we've done in Afghanistan, where we've centralized everything. Lawrence, knowing his comrades culturally, could see that less government for them was better as it suited their lifestyle as well as their intrinsic political worldview. Tailoring a political system to fit the local unit of politics, rather than imposing a one-size-fits-all, overly centralized government on others, is a major insight Lawrence has to teach the failed nation-builders in Afghanistan of today. To make nation-building work, first one needs to find out how the people you are dealing with organize themselves to get things done, and then to operate within this already existing organic framework. The third key theme of the 27 Articles is that Lawrence was acutely aware that as an outsider, he had to be above local politics. He could not be seen to be in the business of picking political winners and losers. As the primary British representative in Faisal's army, he knew that his personal favor or disfavor of particular Arab leaders would be used by local elites to discredit those he sided with. They would be quickly accused of being stooges, as has happened to the Ghani government in Afghanistan. In Lawrence's case, they would be seen as lackeys of the British government, which would cast the very local legitimacy that had made them worth working with in the first place into doubt. Ironically, by making his support transparent, Lawrence would be doing a disservice to the leaders he did value, undermining their effectiveness with their people. 
As Article 8 makes clear, avoid being identified too long or too often with any tribal sheikh, even if commanding officer of the expedition. Sheikhs are above all blood feuds and local rivalries, and form the only principle of unity among the Arabs. Let your name be therefore coupled always with the Sharifs, and share his attitude towards the tribes. This imaginative approach allowed Lawrence to expertly navigate the treacherous shoals of inner Bedou politics. Perhaps most importantly, Lawrence believed that nation-building would not succeed unless it was advanced by the locals themselves. In his masterpiece, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, he makes clear that the Arab revolt, quote, was an Arab war waged and led by Arabs for an Arab aim in Arabia, unquote. Through the trial by fire of the Great War, the Arabs under Faisal had largely liberated themselves. For moral reasons, but also for very practical ones, the local people must be primary stakeholders in nation-building efforts. Above all, the West should help but not dictate, facilitate but not dominate, influence but not lead, advise but not manage. The differences in these terms are not semantic, for they denote wholly different approaches to nation-building. Lawrence recognized that there are real limits to what Westerners can do with local cultures and, as such, limits to what should be undertaken. In Lawrence's particular historical case, the only way the Arab revolt worked was when Western and Bedou interests aligned over expelling the Ottomans from Arabia. Far too often, too much is attempted by Western powers as regime change without working with local interests is almost always not going to work. Fourth and finally, Lawrence understood that local political stability was the key to peace in the Middle East. Faisal, as leader of the Bedou, was the personification of this political truth. Though short, soft-spoken, and shy, even as a young man, the shrewd Faisal was a force to be reckoned with. As the son of the Emir Hussein, the keeper of the Muslim holy places of Mecca and Medina, and directly descended from the Prophet Muhammad, Faisal enjoyed the unquestioned religious legitimacy this conveyed upon his Hashemite family. In addition, Faisal was uniquely acceptable to the loosely aligned tribes of the Arabian Desert and Greater Syria, the Ruwala, the Sarahin, the Bani Sakar, and the Hawatat. As the Great War progressed and the Hashemite cause picked up steam, not only had Faisal given them victory, not a small consideration in Arab culture, he also spoke their dialect of Arabic, understood their tribal structure, and knew their histories. In short, Faisal had the golden advantage of political legitimacy based on shared cultural ties with his men, something the Ghani government patently lacks in Afghanistan made up of a series of different tribes. Lawrence, from their first fatal meeting in Hamra in Arabia in 1916, had recognized that Faisal alone possessed this magic elixir. He saw his own role as advisory. As he stressed in Article 3 of the 27 Articles, quote, Never give orders to anyone at all. Your place is advisory, and your advice is due to the commander alone. Let him see this as your conception of your duty, and that his is to be the sole executive of your joint plans. Article 11 continues in this vein, quote, Wave a Sharif in front of you like a banner, and hide your own mind in person, unquote. During the Arab Revolt, all major military operations Lawrence participated in were led by an Arab commander-in-chief with Lawrence in a vital but supporting role as advisor. In Article 14, Lawrence underlines that paradoxically, this restrained secondary role for himself is the key to exercising power. While very difficult to drive, he said, the Bedou are easy to lead if you have the patience to bear with them. The less apparent your interferences, the more your influences. Lawrence's philosophy was not the product of some sort of Western Orientalist plot. 
It was not a sophisticated way of fooling the Arabs into a more nuanced form of submission. Rather, it amounts to a far more thoughtful and effective way for Westerners to work with developing nations, a way of thinking that has the potential to serve the interests of both. In the case of the Great War, both the Hashemites and the British wanted to expel the Ottomans from their faraway Arabian possessions. This basic strategic commonality was a start. Coupled with Lawrence's unique insight to let the Arabs take the lead in their own story of national liberation, it amounted to a strikingly successful policy. As at Karkamesh, where a young pre-war Lawrence supervised an archaeological dig on the Turkish-Syrian border, Lawrence's overall goal in the Arab revolt was to enable the Hashemite army to do its own work better. As he wrote to his confidant and adopted mother figure, Charlotte Shaw, the wife of playwright George Bernard Shaw, after the war, quote, All my experience of the Arabs was of the godfather role. My object was always to make them stand on their own feet. This is patently what we have not done in Afghanistan. In the common shared interests of both the British and Hashemites, Lawrence wanted to help the Arabs help themselves. Lawrence's very different nation-building philosophy was tested in the most unforgiving classroom imaginable, the real world engulfed in the horrors of global war. Lawrence's friend and biographer Robert Graves estimated that the British government spent around 10 million pounds on the Arab revolt and endured a paltry score or so of British casualties in fighting the Ottomans alongside Prince Faisal. Compare this with $2 trillion in the United States for Afghanistan and 2,500 deaths. Given Lawrence's fantastic results, it was his brilliant, if unorthodox, philosophy that made this British expenditure a bargain at this price. For all his undoubted brilliance as a soldier and a man of dash, it is T.E. Lawrence's role as a thinker ahead of his time that is most valuable for the world we now live in. Lawrence has forgotten nation-building philosophy with an intellectual and policy reach well beyond the immediate specifics in place of the Arab Revolt and the time of the Great War, points to a very different strategy of leadership and nation-building from the top-down failures we see today most gloringly, glaringly in the collapse in Afghanistan where the entire top-down usual approach has collapsed most onerously because the same people have been doing the same mistake over and over again, fitting Einstein's definition of insanity. While Lawrence has long been dead, the days ahead cry out for a resurrection of his thought. And the American people are looking for something different. The latest Hill poll showed despite all attempts to get out from under this, the American public are against further nation-building in Afghanistan in the wrong-headed, top-down approach rather than Lawrence's bottom-up approach. The Hill poll found that 73% of the United States citizens, as opposed to the Western commentariats and elites, favor what Biden is doing in getting out. If we are ever to do nation-building again, we must do it in the Lawrencean way and not the top-down way that has failed over and over and over again. There are answers out there for those of us brave enough to look for them and act on them. I gave up my first career in Washington over the very point of Afghanistan and Iraq, and I must admit, I have no joy in being right, no joy at all in the calamity that has happened. But it is a price worth paying if we learn from our mistakes and move ahead in a more Lorenzian way if we ever have to do nation building again. Do it less often, do it better, do it bottom up. That's what I'm saying here. And everyone involved in the usual disasters should now try to find another career. And those of us who see the past as a guide to our future should move ahead. 
Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy this. For those of you who did, please do subscribe to our John's newsletter and our podcast, which has become very popular, I'm delighted to say, around the world in 20 minutes. For the price of a Starbucks, for those of you who have subscribed for free up to now, please do up it to the price of a Starbucks a month so we continue to provide you with the wonderful assessments that we do that are different and, I hope, entertaining and valuable for you. I hope you enjoyed learning about Lawrence as much as I have. Uh, and again, one of the great moments in my life is my name to be coupled with his in his wonderful book, 27 Articles, which I strongly urge you to buy on Amazon as it explains almost everything about the fall of Afghanistan. Thank you very much and look forward to talking to you soon.